Benchmark Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this week's episode, I'm joined by mental resilience coach, James Elliott. James joined the British Army in 2006, going to 7th Power Royal Horse Artillery into a fire support team to the 3 Power Battle Group. During his time there, he deployed around the world, including Afghanistan. It would be these experiences that would create a pathway to mental resilience coaching for James. After his own issues with mental health, James began working as a strength and conditioning coach at a National League rugby team, where he learned the power of mentoring and development. From this, James was asked to help establish the first ever British Army Parachute Jump Instructor Platoon at RAF Bryce Norton. A task he relished being able to apply the same mentoring techniques he had learned in performance rugby to the young parachute students. Whilst at the RAF Bryce Norton, James would become a qualified mental health instructor and break two Guinness World Records in feats of endurance within rugby. From this position as an Army Parachute Jump Instructor, James wrote to Army HQ, explaining the need for mentorship from credible and experienced soldiers in mental resilience and well-being. His proposal was well received and in 2018, James was moved from the Parachute Training School and placed within Army Health. Here he would help with the development and delivery of all mental resilience training to all regiments, including special forces, as well as deploying to Estonia to deliver to soldiers stationed over there. In 2020, James officially terminated his contract with the British Army, with his aim to deliver his brand of mental resilience and well-being to a much wider audience, including the Paralympic Rowan team and a number of high-performing individuals and organizations. In this episode, James talks about his thoughts on what mental resilience is, the development of the mental resilience coach within the British Army, how this program has been disseminated throughout the British Army, his methods to help build mental resilience, positive and negative behaviours which add or detract from mental resilience, how to be proactive as well as reactive on bad mental health days, and his two Guinness World Records for the longest games of sevens and tens rugby. Afternoon, James, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, mate. How are you doing? I'm doing very good, mate. Uh, how, how's your day been? Yeah, it's been good. Thanks. I've had a, I've had a busy morning. I've also bought some beard oil because I've grown a beard for the first time in my life, like a proper one. Yeah. So I'm quite enjoying um, like sort of, you know, that pampering of your beard that guys get into <laughs> and the oils and the shaping. Yeah, very nice. Although I, I'm just going to take it off soon because it's beginning to irritate me. You've got to get through that point, mate. I had a beard for quite a while. Nothing as majestic as that. Like it was thick through the sides, but then when it came to the chin, it just started to go sparse, but everything else was nice and thick. And I was just like, shit. Wounded. I'm really happy with how it's come out, to be honest. So yeah, it's majestic. Yeah. All you need to do, mate, is slick that hair back. You've got like the proper barbarian look going. Oh, mate, like I can do it, but my hair's so thick. It's like, look at us now. We have, what are we doing? Why are we talking about this? We get <laughs> straight away. No, but yeah, I can do that, but no, but yeah. Got ya. No, it. Well, James, thank you very much for taking the time to come on and speak to me today, mate. Obviously, uh, both me and you have been featured on Mike Chadwick's uh, The Academy as part of his Tackle Athlete uh, website. Um, I've been seeing a lot of stuff you've been putting up around mindset and resilience and that, and I thought you'd be an excellent guest to come on and just talk Thank about you. your own experiences and what you're currently doing around the, the mental um, toughness and resilience sort of model stuff as well. So for guys who haven't come across you, you just give us a little bit of a background and overview of you know, what you've done in your career and where you're currently at. Well, I joined the British Army in 2006 um, and a fairly unstable sort of childhood story. Um, but, but you know, prior to that, uh, so joined the army in 2006. Joined the 
infamous airborne forces and I went to Unit 7 Power HA and was attached as a fire support team, um, as a fire support team, sorry, to the three power battle group for the vast majority of my career. In 2016, after a failed attempt of um, special force selection, mm-hmm. and then I spent about 18 months to two years as a strength conditioning coach at National League rugby team in my spare time, I was asked if I'd be interested in joining or in, in, in helping to originate the British Army's first ever tactical parachute and instructor's platoon. Um, I obviously said yes. Went to RF Bryce Norton and got to begin teaching low-level parachuting and dispatching soldiers from aircraft and loads of parachuting. At the same time, I began to study mental health, having had issues with myself because I joined in 2006. So I had that whole Herrick era until um, 16 Air Assault Brigade when then told you wouldn't be returning to um, to Herrick. We were told that officially. We had a, I was part of uh, the TAC group who were going to go on Herrick 18. So we were stood down from that in 2013, I think. Um, but our last proper tour was 2011. So from 2006 to 2011, very much Herrick focus. And I had... You know, a lot of problems, childhood problems and, and operational problems that sort of reared that ugly head and I sort of had to go through that system. So sort of go back to being a parachuting instructor and I developed these these mental health, this mental health training was actually then using sort of elements of of what I'd learned on the young soldiers to the extent of like uh, emotional control and anxiety regulation to help optimise their performance as young, as young parachutists mm-hmm. um, and was noticing this huge effect that just five minutes of breathing and five minutes of focus would have on a on a young para before getting them on board an aircraft and chucking them out. Um, so I then wrote off to Army HQ and said, look, you know, I've got um, this experience of this and I think that we're not doing this right. I don't think mental health should be taught by doctors and nurses. I think it should be soldiers teaching soldiers mental health and mental well-being and actually we should be teaching the skills to proactively help mental health and proactively increase a soldier's individual mental well-being rather than reactive measures from doctors and nurses should be soldiers should be more support should be peer-to-peer support and they went you've got a very good point there come on then and they took me out of army hq uh, out of uh, the parachute training school and off the army hq and literally like two weeks i've been posted out and went to the army mental health program called opsmart and was sat down with a um with a sergeant major who sort of had begun this designing and development of this mental resilience training product the then, you know, I became the 2IC of Army Mental Resilience and then started coaching mental resilience all around the Army. You know, I was flown to Estonia to do it. I was doing it everywhere. Um, did it with Special Forces guys. Did it, you know, back up in, in Catrick. Did it in, in, in Colchester with, with, you know, the three-power battle group and the mm-hmm. two-power battle group, you know, with all the lads there. And, and then, you know, I, I, anyone from the band to horse guards to, to, you know, commando lads to paras to Special Forces, everybody, regardless of rank cat basil trade was getting a, an element of this and and now i'm i'm a i'm a civilian recent recent well i'm on my termination leave who who is i signed off in in january and i now i do a lot of mental resilience training i do a lot of mental well-being training and i'm doing a lot of performance training you know those same techniques effectively that i was doing at the passion training school and i get to use on paralympians and pro rugby players and pro boxers it's, it's very fulfilling nice mate nice and it's interesting you say there of having that switch away from the, the mental resilience training side of things being taught by doctors and nurses who have you know, great clinical experience within it. But I think for guys who have been in your shoes to teach it, you, know, you can relate a lot more to someone who's had that shared experience and gets that bit more buy-in. Um, we'll get into that in a little bit of depth in a minute, but coming from my own personal experience from being in sport, like 
for years it was always talked about you know within teams especially in rugby it was like oh you know how do we develop mental toughness mental toughness and now it's switching around to this uh this term of resilience through sport through business through the military and stuff like that as well and there's a lot of different uh things being thrown around with it so can you just talk to me a little bit of like how you would define resilience and what your thoughts are around what resilience is and should be so resilience so like mental toughness i mean originally like we to, to rewind um a while back it, it, it would be called like stress management yeah um but it's not that anymore it, it's mental resilience and, and it is it's an element of that it's basically how how the how the brain can cope with stress and pressure and actually do we do we survive or do we thrive mm -hmm. and actually is there opportunity and struggle how do we perceive challenge all of these things are questions that i raise and actually most importantly is is what is physiologically going on because there is this is often something that is mistaken when it comes to mental health when it comes to well-being when it comes to anything brain related people don't understand this physical reactions going on this there's tangible things going on in your brain when there is something wrong there is something tangibly wrong that they can diagnose that there's a neural pattern that's broken that that um allostatic overload has occurred and you've got damaged synapses and that's why you're thinking you're not thinking clearly all of these all of these things you know uh, are actual tangible things so when i'm teaching and i'm teaching about about mental resilience what mental resilience is to me from a neurological perspective it's it's and certainly what i teach and what i believe in it's that tangible it is an overload of information it's an overload of pressure and stress brought upon our our instinctual reaction from our amygdala that damages our decision making process and it creates what's known as allostatic overload and what i do and what i encourage is allostasis through neuroplasticity so adaption to the situation, environment, and pressures and stress stimuli that we are faced with, actually our ability to adapt to that and grow. And, and how do we achieve that? How do we encourage neuroplasticity? And actually various pillars that I've designed and techniques for building those pillars up of those pillars of resilience. So actually how, well, through physical fitness, through confidence, through satisfaction in what you're doing, through the relationships in your life, so these are the things that are gonna make you and assist you in being more, um, adaptable to stress and pressure and that is what's going to hold up a resilient mindset and actually how do we do that well I've got mnemonics for like to develop those pillars develop that individual's capability so in a nutshell mental resilience is evolution it's just evolution to your environment to the situation to your context that's what it is and actually how can I teach people to evolve better to stress nice nice I mean it's a great overview for it and i'd like to dive into that a little bit more james and see some of your concepts well, around that but just to, to pull it back a brief bit like when you were telling us about your career and like how the mental resilience coach position came about you just talk a little bit more about how that's like now filtered down from the work you've done and how that's filtered down throughout uh the, the british army and like the different regiments like are, are you training so when, guys when, now to develop that yeah, regiment or when we, when we started there was two of us it was the start major and there was me and then um we had we sort of put a, like an advert out if you like um to regiments to brigades you know who have you got and it wasn't for everybody that's for sure and people turn up and the first thing you do is, is say um you know you, you've got you've got a um you know a huge amount of learning to do you've got a huge amount of reading like this is not just about sitting on you know and, and taking on board a course this is about learning how to do it and um it's not for everyone mm -hmm. but then we did have you know a few people who were really passionate and really into it and so we utilize them and so now there's there's a team of mental resilience coaches in the north and there's a team in the south and they go around and they do this this brief which is a day-long brief they go from unit to unit 
um, and disseminating this information. Then a couple of times a year, they run like another course, which is effectively like a unit mental resilience rep. This, this might have changed because obviously I'm not part of that. They might have come up with a new plan, um, but it's essentially you're now a mental resilience rep to, to the army. And that's what they, they then teach them. They go on a, a week long course and they say, right, this is it in a little bit more depth. This is what this is. And, and then let them crack on with that. Um, so that's, um, that's how they're sort of disseminated. So from a sort of central team that go out and deliver a day long brief, and then a couple of times a year, they're running a mental resilience sort of instructor, if you will, but a, a unit level course for people to sort of upload. And on that course, you do the lessons more in depth and then you do practical applications. So we do like logs and stretcher races and when we're up in Catrick, we do the, uh, the shuffle bars and get people up on the shuffle for the infamous P company shuffle bars, you know, all that kind of good stuff. So, so there was definitely um, um, a lot of focus on getting the information out to the soldiers. Cool. And obviously with this being disseminated through uh, the, the whole British army there, you were saying before about not only with the infantry guys, but down to members of like the band and stuff like that as well. What's the impact yeah, you're starting to see on the, the servant soldier now? You know, what, what impact is this mental resilience work having on the British army? so much greater levels of self-awareness that was a massive thing that i started to notice like before the idea of mental resilience even when when i joined you know when i joined um that the it wasn't the talked about thing it wasn't done and now like we're going around with people are like you know i go in and and to talk about emotional intelligence and i say right who here has read the chimp paradox and hands were up everywhere people were like loveless people talk people want to talk about the changes that are going on in the brain. People want to talk about, you know, how mindfulness can 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 change neuroplasticity and encourage neuroplasticity. People want to talk about BDNF hormones and people want to talk about glucocorticoids because people are reading it and people are then challenging and talking about it. So definitely, it, it's it's the army's mental resilience program is actually just adding to the momentum that is already there of people who are interested in this. You know, and you've got characters like Dave Goggins you know, who talk about this all the time and like everyone follows Dave Goggins and everyone listens to him and now mental resilience coaching, you know, it, it, it is coming more to the forefront, you know, it is interesting. Yeah, definitely, mate, definitely. And you're saying there, when you first started, like it wasn't, wasn't something that was ever talked about and wasn't um, even on the radar. So what's the, what's the biggest challenges you've faced with, uh, or, you know, implementing this, this framework and this mental resilience throughout the British Army? The interesting thing is, is, is it's not the old, it's not what, what we call in the army, what we describe the old and bold. And by old and bold, that's people like in their early 40s. Okay, mm-hmm. so for the old and bold, so they're not old at all, but the old and bold. And you'd think that would be the issue, right? You'd think it would be that old school mentality of, oh, oh mental health, not interested. Not true. Like, not true at all. Like, actually, I mean, there was a, a guy who was so supportive of mental resilience training and he was uh, two para, I believe, uh, in the Falklands, right? And, and yet, there he is going like, this is brilliant. Like, I love this. This is fantastic. Like, you know, this is so good. And Sergeant Major's like, this is brilliant, Jim. I love what you're doing. You know, the Sergeant Major of P Company is like, this is like, he's a firm believer in mental resilience training. So it wasn't the old and bold. And actually, it was just elements of the demotivated parts of the army. I think that there's this, this unfounded belief that there aren't, that everyone in the British Army is like a super motivated, really keen bloke. But actually, you would get lunch jacks you know, so so not anywhere really up the ladder who would come in with like a attitude about, oh, we'll learn about mental health, have we? Mm-hmm. You know, and then they sit there like at the back, like not interested, you know, and you're like, that's fine. 
because you know that exists wherever you go but that was the biggest challenge it wasn't getting the army to sort of change their opinion it wasn't the old and bold it was it was like the young and ignorant i guess uh-huh. you need to think of something that, that that rhymes but yeah the young and sort of ignorant who would just be like yeah i don't care but you think you might not care now mate but you never know where you're going to be in a year's time and you might really really care then so interesting yeah definitely mate and i think like you've hit on there of some of the younger guys it's potentially just hitting them at the right time with that so as you say it may not be applicable to them at the moment like oh well i don't see the need for this but then down the line like actually wait a second james was in presenting this i remember this this and this sort of thing i can apply that to this situation now that's really interesting um you were talking before about like very briefly about some of the um well some of the uh the tactics and methods you can use could you just uh elaborate on them a little bit like some of the methods you've used to help either like build mental resilience or instill that mental res- res- uh, resilience into uh, soldiers? I use the mnemonic MIND. Okay. And the M it, MIND, M-I-N-D. So M is measurable success. Mm-hmm. So what are you doing? What are you doing to achieve your goals? What steps have you put in? And, and write them down. Like what have you written down that you are going to do that's going to help you achieve your goals? The I is intrinsic motivation, right? Because you can watch all the David Goggins stuff if you want, and you can have someone standing over you screaming, shouting all you want, but like real change comes from within. Mm-hmm. So what are, we, what are you doing to motivate yourself? And actually what low-hanging fruits are you achieving? Like what really easy steps, what really simple things are there you could do? And I, I used an experiment that I did on myself um, when I talk about intrinsic motivation, which is I, I, ran, I ran a half marathon and then I ran a marathon, right? So I ran mm-hmm. a half marathon. And a half marathon was like 11 loops of this lake next to my girlfriend's house. The lake's like 11 and a bit miles and her house is about a mile from it. So it's like 10, maybe 11 laps of that lake. And then, but every time I go past, I go past a little turning for her house. And I know five minutes up that road, not even that is hers. And, and you can see the car park and all that kind of stuff. And you're like, oh, and you go past it. So I had to circle this, this temptation all the time. Right. And like in my head, I've never been so close to breaking my life. And I, I never, I didn't give up on, like I failed selection, but I didn't, I didn't give up on anything. Like I didn't, you know, like I, I'm not that way inclined. Like I, I never came close to giving up on P company, but on this half marathon that I was doing just for the sake of it, yeah. running round and round and round and round and round. And that opportunity to quit was placed in front of me every time. It was tough, but on my, my marathon, I ran, I'm, I was at my mum's and I ran, my mum's is about, less than 100 meters from a dual carriageway right so to this sort of a40 so i've got to this dual carriageway and then on this dual carriageway then ran 13.1 miles straight down this road turned around and then came all the way back now the beautiful thing about that is is first of all first of all there was no quicker way back yeah that was the i ran a straight line the fastest way back was the way that i came like there was no shortcuts so 13.1 miles so there's no option there was no distraction there was no way for me to to cheat myself secondly it was like the height of the pandemic so there was like there was no cars there was no there was no way like people so like as i said I, I didn't give myself an excuse to to to, to quit people like, you could have flagged down a, a car so it was on a, it was on a dual carriageway and secondly like you're not walking out into a dual carriageway and there were no cars anyway so i ran 13.1 miles turned around around 13.1 miles back people were like why and i go because i wanted to do this test and the test was the 13 the the, the marathon was a lot easier mentally mm-hmm. than the half marathon because there was no option to quit it was just time to get on with it so when i talk about intrinsic motivation i talk about removing the things that are going to slow you down 
like including toxic relationships, removing those. And then we get to the end, which is now in the present moment. Like, and that's not about doing anything crazy except uniting mind and body. Like, stop overthinking the future. Stop thinking about the past. Let's focus on the here and now. And actually, really simple, really simple breathing techniques, really simple concentration techniques, focusing techniques to keep you in the present moment. And then the D, so mind, the D is dream big, like positively. Well, what are you thinking about? What are you thinking about every day? If I got into someone's, someone's close um, space and started effing and blinding and shoving them and telling them they were useless and shit and all that kind of, you know, they, they would turn around and say, don't speak to me like that. Are you teaching me some respect? And yet, yet we all speak to ourselves in that way. So yeah. when I talk about Dream Big, I talk about the power of positivity. I talk about the power of visualization. I talk about the power of mental rehearsal. I talk about the power of the ability to focus on, on who you want to be and making that person, um, and manifesting that person. Um, and so that's what I talk, I talk a lot about mind and that mind mnemonic is what I use to build up these pillars. Like how can you build up your confidence? Well, by, by, by measurable success and by thinking really positively about it. Okay. Well, how about the relationships in my life? Well, that that's intrinsic motivation, isn't it? Like who is getting in the way of your motivation? Who is slowing you down? Right. Okay. Like how can we distance them from ourselves? Well, actually like emotional intelligence. Well, that's now in the present moment, isn't it? Let's, let's be emotionally intelligent. How are we feeling and why are we feeling that way? Okay, good. How can we push forward? So I use that mind to build up those pillars. And that's what I find is extremely successful. In fact, the most successful by a long, long way is giving a person a sense of purpose. If you give an individual a sense of purpose, like when the why is strong enough, everything else becomes irrelevant yeah. because they will find a way to make it happen. So the most important thing that we can do is give somebody a why, helping them achieve that why, give them that sense of purpose. Nice, mate. I mean... That's really interesting there. You're talking about the, the whole uh, positive self-talk and um, positive outlook on things as well and being present as well. Um, I've seen that a lot in sport. I remember chatting to a judo Olympian. He was saying that as well. Like, you know, other guys had asked him about judo being such a physically demanding sport. Like, do you ever just feel like you just want to, you know, give up and just say like, no, this is uncomfortable at this point. You know, I'm just going to call it quits here. And he's like, no, because I give myself permission to win. And too many people are yeah. always like, oh, no, you know, uh, this is getting tough. I'll just take that off ramp. Like you were saying with yeah. the, the half marathon, every time you came past that little gap in the, in the, the path, that was that little, little hanging through. Like, you know, you can be home, you can be comfortable in five minutes, you know. But it's just like, no, I'm going to avoid that and keep going. Uh, yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I remember speaking to you before, James, we were talking about just behaviors. And you touched upon briefly there, like some of the toxic relationship stuff there as well. We were saying about some of the healthy and risky behaviors that can feed in or detract from um, mental resilience. Can you just talk a little yeah. bit about them and what each one is and like how people can either increase or decrease those uh, aspects? So we've got well, health behaviors. We, we talk about like your sleeping pattern. So one of the, the pillars of, of that I have is, is, is physical health. What are you doing for your physical health to improve your mental resilience? So are you sleeping enough? And people like, always make a joke about, Oh, you know, there's, there's like millions of memes out there, isn't there, about not having enough sleep and surviving off coffee and hey, like, yeah, yeah, it's brilliant, mate. But actually, studies have shown that when you sleep, you drain your brain of cortisol. We all know that, right? But actually, an, an extensive buildup of cortisol over an extended period of time is actually a precursor to Alzheimer's. So, like, that's great. You're, you're writing all these memes about, about and you're, you're, you're scrolling through Instagram late at night about how you can't sleep. Brilliant. But actually, like the serious long-term damage that you're doing to your brain from that, you will really regret in your 50s and your 60s when you can't recognize your own grandchildren. Mm -hmm. So like, mm -hmm. let's step away from that because, you know, 
like, permanent exhaustion is going to destroy your mental resilience. Like so many other things, so many other basic low hanging fruits that you can achieve, like drinking water. How much water you drink today? Like everyone knows, right? So I've got my water bottle to encourage me more to use it to get it out. I have, of course, decorated it like all good soldiers should with the various apparel bat you know, apparel brands that I support from, uh-huh. um, from above apparel, obviously, obviously combat fuel has to be on there. I think combat fuel appears on there three times, you know, because it's mine and it's personalized yeah. and now I like it and I enjoy it and I enjoy having it with me. So, and now I'm drinking constant water all the time. Food. We know McDonald's is a treat and yet people will still eat McDonald's every day. So now they're exhausted because they're not asleep. They're dehydrated and, they, and they're eating crap. You're putting crap into your body. You're treating it like crap and then complaining. They're not achieving the things that they want to achieve. Well, it's really, really simple. Stop putting shit in your body. Yep. Just, like allow your body. Like people complain to me all the time about they can't lose weight. You know, particularly now we're coming out of, of, of um, lockdown and people have put weight on because naturally with lockdown, you need a more sedentary lifestyle. And now they're complaining they can't lose weight. And I've got, how much water are you drinking? Like, it, with almost all mental resilience um, issues that come to me, the first thing I do is I, is, I, is I interrogate before I do anything psychological is we talk about their, their physical behaviors, their health behaviors, because those are some of the precursors to a weakened state of mental resilience. You say you're not sleeping enough. You're not eating enough. You're not drinking enough. You're putting crap into your body. You're, you're, you're smoking. You're doing all these things here that are going to massively deteriorate your mental resilience. And so then we look at right, what measurable success is. What, 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 simple, what things can we do? What goals can we set to improve that physical health pillar? Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. How can we remain intrinsically motivated as well to do that? Like, what are we learning? How are we gathering speed? How are we gathering confidence with this? And that's all, those, that's all that is. But there's some really damaging health behaviors that we need to we need to look at particularly now coming out of of covid because people have developed i think i think we're now the average person spends 40 percent of their waking time in front of a screen that is not how we are designed to live as human beings and that is extremely dangerous so that's something that we need to look at um alcohol consumption has obviously gone through the roof like again something we need to look at and everyone makes jokes about it you know but then they'll be the first ones to complain when their health isn't in great shape. Well then take ownership of it. One of the biggest things that I push is ownership of behavior. Like there's no room in my coaching for, for a lack of accountability. Like it is, it is all accountable by self. Everything is choice. When it comes to that sort of psychological aspect of it, I'm very much a fan of Adler. So Adler was sort of a friend of Freud and Adler said, everything is choice. Mm-hmm. Whilst Freud said, everything is trauma. Adler says everything is choice. Trauma is an influence, but you still choose to do the things that you do. So whilst everyone's making jokes about eating crap and not looking after themselves and then coming to me in like in, in a bad way, like accountability is key. Like you take ownership of that behavior because you can't change something you can't control, which yeah. is again, now in the present moment, another thing that I teach about attribution theory. You can't change what you can't control, but actually you control your health behavior. So that is something that you have to take ownership of. Nice, man. And yeah, I think that's massive there because I think there's a lot of people out there who are, they feel like they're victims of circumstance a lot of time. It's just like, oh, you know, I'd love to do this, but I can't because of these reasons. And it's like, well, take a step back and see, like, what is that that's playing into that? So, like you say there about the nutrition side of things, oh, I can't learn, help- learn helplessness. It's the same with, it's the same. Like, I think we live in a, and I talk to a, a, a very, very successful doctor about this. We live in a, in a, in a society of, of of um over diagnosis so everybody needs to be diagnosed everybody needs their diagnosis like you you can't just be like 
a bit of a shit bloke. Like you need to have a diagnosis. Yeah, but it you know, but it but it's true, everybody needs a trauma, everyone needs mm-hmm. a problem. And because of that, we find and so many psychological studies about this that if you tell somebody they are a certain way, then they will start behaving in increasing manners like that. That that behavior, that pattern of behavior will increase. You yeah. say to somebody that, oh, you know, it, you're you're a paranoid. You're, you're paranoid. You suffer from paranoia. You got you. They they then they then become more paranoid because you've given them that diagnosis. You've given them that that not that not to it. Now I am not in any way taken away from people who have a genuine mm-hmm. paranoia um, um, diagnosis and it's horrible and and there is a lot being done it you know in both the clinical pharmaceutical uh, and psychological world to assist those people. But what I mean is is you know like everyone wants to talk about anxiety and depression. And as soon as they get these diagnoses, they then increase their negative health behaviors because that's all right. I've had this diagnosis. I understand it now. Now, a lot of people wait years and years and years and they get the diagnosis and finally they can push forward with the correct treatment. That's ideal. But I, we do live in a world of overdiagnosis. And actually what we just need to do is take ownership of our behavior a little bit more. Yeah, I think there the, the classic is obviously... Um was it google google medical diagnosis you've got a headache you google it and then suddenly you know it's not just a headache anymore it's something far far more dramatic yeah exactly and then that exacerbates their symptoms i mean it's not just a, a mental health thing or order you know you're right it's a physical one as well and 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 they they you know they exacerbate their symptoms because they mm-hmm. they've got that label and that's all mm-hmm. they they wanted their label you know the amount of times i hear people insist that it's not their fault something's happened it's the way that they were brought up you know, it's a way that they were raised or it's their trauma. And you think, no, that's not, that's not okay. Like, it's not okay to blame that. Like, yes, that happened. And yes, that's an influence. And yes, it's awful. But you can't keep blaming that for your behavior. Definitely, definitely. And you see it a lot with uh, the environment. Some people come out of, like, they either let swallow them completely. And like you say, they use that as their crutch or they utilize it to grow and become better uh, people and go on to accomplish great things. Um, same on there with some of the stuff there as well, James. You talked yesterday, I think it was you put it up on Instagram around like just having like a bad mental health day and how people yeah. um, don't have the the steps in place to be either proactive or even reactive on those days. Do you just elaborate yeah. on that a little bit more and like what do you mean by that and what are some of the steps people can either put in place to be more proactive as well as being yeah. reactive to it? Yeah, great question. So um, it's something that I have um, in force, and I really actually posted about it sooner because of the the response I've had. It's been massive. Um, so I'm obviously I'm on my way out of the military, and that in itself comes with its own load of psychological problems. We find that um, like loss of identity, um, uh, lack of tribal influence, um, and and a decreased sense of purpose. Even though you know I've got all this stuff going on, I still have like a real decreased sense of purpose, and that's. That's tough, right? Because something that the army really, really, really does hashtag this is belonging, mm-hmm. you know, it, and be the best is is it introduces that tribal influence uh, that that gives us such a strong sense of purpose, and you know, we, we've we've got that real identity with it. Um, so to that end, when it's gone or when it's going, it's difficult. So I was having I was having a really difficult mental health day yesterday. In fact, like the worst was 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 the night before. So I woke up in a bit of a bad way, and so the night before I'd been, you know. Um, really moody with with my girlfriend who is nothing but an absolute rock for me and and I, it's not okay right so 
proactive and reactive measures. So proactive measures, if aware of your behavior which is difficult because you have to achieve a certain sense of self-awareness but but just feeling like i'm feeling a bit rubbish today i'm feeling a bit down i'm feeling a bit shitty i'm feeling moody but okay right what proactive measures now can i have to prevent myself from going into a like a really tight spiral so okay like proactive measures like first of all meditate second of all am i keeping myself busy like distraction techniques am i keeping myself entertained do i have a purpose what about the gym? How much water have I drank? What food have I eaten today? All that kind of good stuff. Um, and you will find and how much sleep have I had? You know, again, like as I talked about before, like the physical contingent is massive. Um, okay, cool. Right. Well, what have I done? Okay. What am I thinking about all day? What am I pouring into my brain? You know, maybe I should read a book. Maybe I should listen to my music and I have to caveat that with a certain type of music, you know, like I can't listen to like a Slipknot or anything, you know, whilst I'm having a bad day. I, um, m um but yeah you know i start um um i'm having you know the and i i sort of find a way of sort of just i'm not trying to necessarily pull myself out of it i'm just trying to manage it you know like i'm not saying this is a cure but i'm saying that this will help you prevent you from going on that spiral then when i find myself on that spiral which i certainly did at the night time reactive measures like what can i put in place now to prevent myself from spiraling you know, when I am in that spiral to managing that spiral better and firstly, get rid of my phone. Like don't, because that's when I start, you know, getting shirty because like, I want to text and I want to like lash out and I want to be moody. Like, and when you, when you're certain frame of mind, obviously you frame everything, every, we frame every um, eventuality that happens to us, every environment, every situation. And so when you get a text message and you frame it in a certain way, you'll read it in a certain way. And therefore you will then want to respond in a certain way. So I removed my phone um, from me and I, I breathe, I do some meditation and I just try and just try and get into bed and just try and get away from everything. Um, and that's so yeah, preventative and proactive measures and reactive measures. I think too much do we focus on reactive measures to mental health, reactive measures to, to break down some spirals and people having a bad day. And actually we don't focus enough on proactive measures. Like what can we be doing now to help manage ourselves a bit better? Yeah. It's interesting you say there about the reactive thing and being able to catch yourself on that downward spiral. I think a lot of people mm. do fall into that bracket of like just letting things stack one on top of the other. And then eventually it's just like, it's a ticking time bomb and just lashing out mm. completely from it. Um, you talk there about meditation just to get yourself back into like the right mindset. Do you, uh, have you like attended classes? Do you just have an app for that or how, how do you run uh, with that? So, yeah. So, I mean, my first introduction to mindfulness was by Captain Pat Burgess. And actually, I'll give, I'll give you his details. He's a great guy. And, um, and he sort of introduced mindfulness into the British Army. He's just got an, an MBE for it. And, um, yeah, he, like, he sort of turned up and did a thing on mindfulness with me and then put this, co this course on the defence learning environment. I did that. And then, then I started getting really into it. And there's loads of books and courses and sort of just mindfulness sessions that you can attend and started reading. And, um, you know, particularly with the reading, like, it really sort of opened my eyes. And, and there's different brands of mindfulness and there's different brands of meditation. Um, I'm, I, I work off of the science Right. I'm not, I'm not about spirituality and that's not, that's not because I'm not spiritual and that's not because I don't have a faith or a religion because I do just to clarify, but I'm not, I'm, I'm here. What is the tangible difference we can talk about? I'm not here doing wishy-washy think positive. I'm talking about, I'm talking about changing 
synapses. I'm talking about changing neural pathways. I'm talking about re, you know, hypothalamic domination through greater use of the DLPFC in the prefrontal cortex. Right? I, am, I am the serious science. So if we're talking about meditation, I don't want to hear about my, my energies connecting with the earth. I don't want to hear about that. Like, I'm not into that. That's not what I'm about. And if you are, that's great. That's fantastic. Whatever works subjectively for you. Yeah. What works for me, what works for me is the mindfulness where we talk, we do for relaxation techniques. And then once you're relaxed, okay, and then you have stripped away all the sort of mental barriers that are going on in your head because you're not fussy. Your amygdala is playing less of a role in your conscious thought and your prefrontal cortex, your reasoning and your logic is playing a far more, a far, far more um, powerful role in your conscious thought and you go right okay what do I want to do where am I going to go what do I need to do I'm making mistakes here I'm getting wound up over nothing it's time to calm myself and those things are what's going to make a difference and 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 that's what that's the mindfulness that I believe and there are so many you, like I just I literally go on YouTube and I go 10 minutes mindfulness meditation and there are there it comes up with thousands of hits and I scroll through um, I avoid Sort of spirituality ones just because they don't appeal to me but there's loads on there there's some great books as well uh, mindfulness finding peace in a frantic world it comes with a little cd people can remember what cds are it comes with a little cd you put the cd on you read the book and then you do the the mindfulness practices in it um some of some of them are brilliant one or two like the one where you got to put chocolate in your mouth and you're not allowed to chew it like that's bullshit that one like i'm just next thing you know i'm three bars of cadbury's down oh my god <laughs> trying to make me flat. um so yeah um but some of them like are, are absolutely fantastic and it, it's just that regaining control of your prefrontal cortex and that's how i see it some people you know they like to light the candles and they, they you know the incense and then they you know they, it's all about reconnecting those energies that's not for me spiritual like i'm a i'm a i'm, I'm a i'm a practical man of action like I need to know that it's, and actually then they did studies with the Dalai Lama um, about his brain and his neuroplasticity, which was like off the charts, mm -hmm. off the charts levels of control with his brain. And he, it's all this me mindfulness meditation that he's done. He can literally, when we talk about energy with me, I talk about energy. I'm literally talking about calories. Like I'm not talking about some spiritual energy or yeah. energy of the universe. I'm talking about calories. So when I'm saying like you're wasting your energy thinking about that, I mean you are wasting calories thinking about that. You are tiring your brain and therefore you're tiring yourself out thinking about that. I'm not talking about some mysterious universal energy. I'm talking about literally you are you are burning calories mm -hmm. thinking about unnecessary things. And that's what mindfulness is, is about controlling where we're spending that energy. Nice. Nice. And just to, to pull it back there a bit, James, I find that really interesting. And to dive into the science a bit more that you were saying, you're trying to switch from being in the amygdala back to the prefrontal cortex with a bit more reasoning. You just talk a little bit about that, um, how that shift in the brain pattern happens when we're going through that stress and that resilience factor. Okay, cool. So, so we have we have the limbic system, which is generally speaking, is, is part of our sort of emotional autonomous system. In the center of that, we've got this little thing called the amygdala. Now, the amygdala wants desperate control of a thing called the hypothalamus. Now, great way of explaining the hypothalamus is, have you seen the movie Spider-Man 2? The one with Tobey Maguire in it, yeah. with Dr. Octopus, right? Dr. Octopus, right? And he's got those, those big, long octopus metal arms, right? And then he's in that explosion. There's a little chip at the top of the spine, right? And his brain, and that's what gets damaged. And then that's what means is he, he loses control of that. That is a representation of the hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus sits at the top of the spinal cord, at the bottom of the brain, 
And what happens is, is that is what instigates our nervous system reaction to stress, right? And so our, our amygdala, which is essentially the first part of our brain that's formed, and it's the oldest part of our brain, we've had that since we were cavemen, this constantly scans for fear and danger. It senses fear and danger, it goes, and it sends a message by what's called glucocorticoids to the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus goes like that, and it sends this message of react, of fight, flight, or freeze, right down the, down the spinal cord, and we have that reaction. So what happens when we prevent that is essentially we are presented with this moment of fear we're presented with this and and, and the amygdala goes like that and actually what happens then is our cognitive memory goes hang on a minute we've got a way of dealing with this and it comes to the prefrontal cortex and then you make much more logical decisions now mm -hmm. the prefrontal cortex itself is broken into two parts which is the vmpfc and the dlpfc so the dlpfc is a dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the VMPFC is the prefrontal <laughs> cortex. Now, <laughs> way to remember this, right? And it's so naughty that I do this, but the way to remember this, right, is, is DL, PFC, uh -huh. is logical, PFC, right? And VM is very emotional. So it's in very emotional, yeah. PFC, right? So you've got these two sides, but you've got this logical side, which is, this is now conscious thought. You've got logical side, you've got emotional side. So the emotional side ties, ties very closely by neurons and their synapses to this amygdala. So when this amygdala goes like that, and we go, oh, cognitive mode, we've got a way of dealing with this. It's now firing like this emotion at your VMPFC, and that makes you think like you're consciously very over-emotionally. Still with me? Yep. DLPFC is the logical bit that will then reason with that. Now, what we found, you think, oh, well, easy. Why can't we just shut down the VMPFC? Well, people who make purely logical decisions actually make increasingly bad ones. Like, you know, we see it with computers all the time. And we're actually, lots of these AI experiments have been produced where they've removed emotion, actually, it, it, increasingly in terrible emotions. And then when we see people make decisions based purely on emotion, that actually, that's when there's been a, you know, a huge amount of issue. Um, so yes, yeah, so we have the cognitive memory thing part of our brain saying actually we've got a way of dealing with this And so that's what we're trying to do. So with mindfulness What we're trying to do is we've got the cognitive memory when the amygdala starts panicking stops it from firing those glucocorticoids at the hypothalamus to just go in start screaming just run just go into automatic caveman mode And what we're trying to do is push that 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 thought pattern into the prefrontal cortex with the DLPFC where our logical side can go hang on a minute yes I have got this emotional feeling towards it. the best course of action would be to do this. And actually really good experiment way, or really good way of looking at this is to be, if you're driving in your car and a car was to swerve in front of you, you'd slam the brakes on and you'd scream and you'd shout, and you'd be furious at him. And like, you know, if you're on the motorway, you, you pull up alongside him, it's actually at free power. And this guy, like an absolute lunatic of a man, um, free power motors. And, you know, and I said, what'd you do? Did you scream and shout? He said, no. I pull up alongside them, I wind the window down and I throw change out the window at them. <laughs> oh, like that. The whole room was quiet. I was like, okay. Anybody, is there anybody here who's not psychotic? Because that is absolutely horrendous. Um, yeah, and, uh, and actually then, okay, so that's how we react. We scream, we shout, we lose our cord. Okay, so I, there's that fear and the amygdala, <gasps> like that. And then, and then we send that message to the, hip, to the, the glucocorticoids that overwhelm the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus sends this message down our spine and we rah, scream and shout. We're in absolute automatic mode. We're, we're reacting without thinking, right? And then we begin to calm down and then we begin to see energy and neural patterns begin to fire again in the DLPFC, okay, in the VMPFC, and we then have this, oh, he was a knob, he deserved it, yeah, yeah but, you know, 
we're still driving like we're st it's still not safe to do this actually let's get a bit of control and then to the point where we even begin to get embarrassed about our reaction we're then going oh god i really wish i hadn't done that you know so that's so that's that but then do you react the same way if that's an ambulance that swerves in front of you because it's the same level of danger right it's the same it's the same oh my god yeah. but actually you don't react that way so because what's happening there is your your amygdala is going <gasps> for a danger and then your cognitive memory is going well hang on a minute that's an ambulance so we don't need to lose it like that and then that message then doesn't go to your hypothalamus we still have this like <gasps> reaction right but we're not losing control we're not getting angry and actually then that energy is then redirected to your prefrontal cortex and your reasoning and your logic and more specifically your dlpfc and your dlpfc is going could be a person on in that ambulance dying or could be a woman giving birth mm -hmm. and actually there's no need for me to lose my temper so we can actually see the practical difference of what's going on in our brain there by instigating that sort of fail safe so how can we manipulate mindfulness to do the same thing well rather than getting overwhelmed by situations we find ourselves in when we can identify ourselves in overwhelming situations rather than allowing the hypothalamus to take over and allowing ourselves to go mad because just remember everything is choice we can choose better because we've got things in our cognitive memory that are going to make us go breathe calm relax stay focused what do i need to do next and that's what we see in actually people who um who tend to do very well in things like police or military or um and, you know the medical world anything really where there's a lot of high amount of pressure have just got very 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 they're, they're two things that they are absolutely all over first and foremostly is is emotional intelligence and remaining in control is that staying in control of their mind and secondly is goal setting Every single successful athlete that I've ever trained is absolutely all over goal setting. Not just the, the, the application of it, but actually the technicalities of it as well. Understanding what grow model means, understanding Oscar, understanding um, uh, smart and smarter principles to goal setting, like all over that. Um, and that's the fascinating thing to see. That's cool. That's really interesting to hear. And obviously, uh, just that process of... Um, taking in cognitive information in that process and be like, right, okay, is this an emotional reaction or a bit more of a clinical logical reaction? But you say there about the goal setting stuff. I've experienced that as well with some of the athletes I've worked with. It's just like yeah. one, having smart goals, but also being able to reverse engineer it. So it's like, right, I want to make the Olympic team. Okay, what does that look like? Well, I need to qualify this competition or this competition. How do I get there? You know, well, I need to make sure I'm fit. What does that mean? Okay, I need to attend. 90% of my SNC sessions and stuff like that sort of thing. So it's just working backwards from there and putting those, yeah, those blocks yeah, in place. And, and, and that's why I always say to particularly the young athletes, and, and I've got some really exciting things I can't really talk about at the moment, but some really, really exciting things in the pipeline with some clubs have approached me to work with their youth teams. And the really exciting thing about that is, is I mean, it was something that I, I introduced when I was at, at Colchester Rugby Club, and that's that talent is privilege. Mm -hmm. and so therefore, talent doesn't mean anything. I don't care how talented a person is. Talent means nothing to me. I'm not particularly talented, but I work hard. Yeah. And so work ethic is everything. Like your ability to set goals and remain in control of your emotions, that is work ethic. So if you can, that is what work ethic is. If you can set goals and you can maintain that and you can graph through even when you're tired, when you're hungry, when the chips are down, you can graph through your work that is set in front of you by the goals that you have set. That is work ethic. And that is why I see so many very, very talented athletes fall at the wayside before they even got into their 20s mm -hmm. because they, 
they, they rely too much on their talent. Whilst the guys who have got a little bit of talent, but have got a great work ethic, who are very, very good at setting goals and who are very, very good at remaining in control of their emotions, they're the ones that fly. And those two things are teachable. Talent isn't teachable. You're born with talent. And that's why I don't like it because it's given away. I like things that are earned. That, that work ethic and that emotional intelligence has to be earned and it, it can be taught and it has to be worked on. And that's why I really enjoy it. And actually now there are players who, when they, when, I, when they first came to me for coaching, were told you will never make the first team and now, are now concrete members of the first team who are regularly given man of the match, who are regularly praised for their consistent performances in the first team because they have simply worked hard enough to be there. And they're playing National League rugby and they are absolutely outstanding and they are there for a reason. Talent means nothing. <laughs> Work ethic is everything. I'd agree 100% with that. Like from coaching experience, the guys I've always had a, a love for and really enjoyed working with has always been that, that workhorse who comes in who may not be, like you say, the most innate talented person, but just outworks everyone else in yeah. the building and to get there. Yeah. Um, sidebar conversation on this then, James, just because you mentioned rugby. Uh, and we'll get back to the mental resilience stuff in a second. Um, but obviously, you're a rugby player yourself, mate, and you're also the holder of two Guinness World Records, are you not? I am, and I have just had my application for the third accepted. Nice. So okay, I'm so tell us a little bit about I'm that. Attempting. Well, so I hold, so we, my rugby team, my, my, well, the Sevens rugby team that I'm in, I'm part of the nuclei of this Sevens team. Uh, we hold the Guinness World Record for the longest game of rugby Sevens, which is 24 and a half hours straight. A full contact, full rugby. Uh, and then we are also the world record holders for the longest game of rugby tens, 24 and a half hours straight. And then next year, we are doing the Guinness World Record for the longest game of rugby 15s. And we're doing that for 40 hours straight. Wow. Okay. That's crazy. Where, where did the concept of these... Uh these long matches, like these 24-hour and 40-hour matches come from? We've got a PGI called Rob Ugden, who was on the Great British running team. He, like, his, he used to run against Mo Farah, had a terrible parachuting accident and shattered his spine, paralyzed in the chest now. Um, we wanted to sort of build something around him that, you know, we could all socialize and keep, you know, keep eyes on him and, and just enjoy it. And it's just this beast has just grown and Rob like set this challenge so we did it and then you know and then we did it again the next year and and you know and now we go to all these competitions you know and I've played against um, Italy and Switzerland and um, the army mm -hmm. it didn't go down well uh, you see so, yeah you know I've, um, I've played some, uh, some 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 like amazing rugby amazing standard of rugby and I'm not a great rugby player by any means um, but it's just the very nature of what it is that we do and we're there in our bright pink kit you know and we're we're running about and having a laugh so amazing nice man nice and i'll try and bring it back into the resilience side of things then was that ever a point during that 24-hour period where like just mentally like the dark thoughts come in you're like this is tough oh my god oh my god yeah uh about 18 hours the sevens my feet were in far worse condition at the end of the sevens at the end of the sevens my feet were in tatters um I reckon I fractured a, a, a metatarsal in the tens about 16 hours in, which just was awful. So the yeah. physio was like, that's broken, Jim, you've got to go to hospital. I'm like, no, nah, come on. I'm, I'm, I've only got eight hours to go. I've only got eight hours to go. So, um, 
uh, yeah, um, was was um, was tough. But the uh, um, the tens, I think I I I made the mistake of about nineteen twenty hours in. I asked what the score was. Okay. And we were winning because obviously we have an opposition. We were winning by like two thousand points, which just sucked the morale out of me because I'm like. Well, they're never going to catch up with us now. No matter what, they're yeah. never going to catch up with us. So, actually, let's just fob it off. Let's just... And then I started mincing. But what I found, which is true to everything that I teach, the more involved in the rugby I got, the easier it became. Mm-hmm. So, the less time I spent, you know, just standing there, like, just catching a breath, and the more time I just spent going at it and going at it and going at it, actually, the quicker the time went. And when you get to sort of 20-odd 20, 20, 20 hours in, you need that time to go quicker. Yeah. So just get involved. Man, that is awesome, yeah. dude. That is awesome. And when do you say the, the 15s is kicking off? Yeah, July. July. Okay. That'll be interesting, mate. Um, is, there, is there going to be a website or anything based around that for guys to follow it in the build-up? Yeah, so the Horror Sevens, we've got our Instagram page. So we want to follow the, the Horror Sevens, which is H-O-R-U-S, the, the Greek god of the, of the, of the sky. Of course, Horror Sevens. And... Uh, yeah, and uh, there's also a Facebook page. All right, I'll put that in some show notes there as well, mate, for you. Uh, let's see. Okay, but so just coming back around then to uh, your role within the army, um, working as a mental resilience coach. Obviously, you said you're finishing up, come around by January. What, what's next? What's next for me, or what's next for the army's mental resilience? Good question, mate. Let's say for both of them. So how do you see, first of all, the Army Mental Resilience Program developing from what you've gone to at the moment to where do you see it going? Embedded mental resilience coaches, at least, at, at the very least, at brigade level. Yep. Like everyone talks, you know, in the Army, a very good game about being a, a mental health and mental well-being ambassador, but let's actually make that a thing. Let's actually make people mental health ambassadors. Let's actually employ people to be in brigades, in regiments, in whatever teaching and coaching mental health mental resilience let them be that point of call let them be the proactive measures to mental well-being and mental health um and for myself um i've got some really really exciting projects some mental health projects um but obviously i'm more far more mental resilience and well-being coaching but some some really huge gaps in in um in the mental health world that we need to be filling and actually I've got an opportunity to do that. So I'm seizing that opportunity and we've got, yeah, so I've got that coming on and then I've got some, um, some obviously my individual coaching, my coaching with the athletes, my coaching with various sports teams still, you know, um, back in, you know, the season comes to an end in two weeks with the, with the, uh, with the rowing, but you know, when the season restarts, you know, doing the Paralympic rowing again. So really, really exciting, really, really exciting stuff on the horizon. Just, I love working with high-performing people, any high-performing individuals. So I've done a bit in the corporate world. I've done a bit, you know, quite a lot for the automotive industry. Um, high-performing people are, are my kind of people. They're mm-hmm. the exciting people to coach. But also I do, you know, the charity stuff. You know, I'm backing, you know, now COVID's come down. I'm backing comes with, a, you know, a charity that I do a lot of work with, um, with prison leavers in central London, um, working a lot with military, looking at working with some more military charities. Um, I was working with the Samaritans yesterday, on on um de- development of a veterans app for the samaritans so you know like lots going on really yeah. exciting 
That is awesome. That's awesome to hear, James. And if anyone's listening here and it's like, you know, taking a lot from this, uh, this episode, if someone wanted to get in touch with you and either bring you in to help work with them either individually or within their organization or company, how could they get in touch with you? So I, I use my, my social media as my business outlet. So I make myself very um, social media savvy and I'm very contactable on there. And I am on there as James Elliott official. Um, so James Elliott, Elliott is E-L-L-I-O-T-T and official is O-F-F-I-C-I-A-L. I'm sure people know how to spell that, but James Elliott official, one word. And please, like I, I regularly comb through my inboxes and, you know, I, I, I regularly identify the catfishes. Yeah. I regularly, I, I regularly identify, um, time wasters but actually i get a huge amount of really exciting individuals and opportunities and pretty much almost all of my opportunities from well not necessarily opportunities all of the mental resilience um that that i've i've achieved has come through social media because i'm i'm you know i post very professionally i present myself very professionally and and actually yeah there's there's a lot from physical fitness and well-being to the you know the mental side of it actually you know what am i doing to 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 represent that so yeah, absolutely. Um, social media me him on Instagram. Cool. No worries, James. And then just last question for me. I always like to just inquire just from CPD perspective, what guys are looking at to, you know, make themselves better. Like you've obviously talked today about a lot of different resources you've looked at and stuff like that. But could you just give us either a book, an app or a website recommendation you found very useful? Well, I think that the, the, the best place to start is the chimp paradox. Mm-hmm. by Professor Steve Peters. Jim Paradox is a brilliant book. Now, I imagine there's going to be members of your audience who have said, I've read this mind management book. Cool. If you then want the next level, what's actually neurologically going on, there's a book called Behave by a guy called Robert Sapolsky. Wow. Wow. Okay. book is unbelievable. It's, a, it's effectively the neuroscience of, of your extremities of behavior to understand what is actually going on in your brain when you're furious and what's actually going on in your brain when you're in love, like all of this stuff that is explained and it is absolutely incredible. So yeah, the, my two recommendations would be first of all, read the chimp paradox then read behave by Robert Sapolsky. Nice. I'll make sure I've got that noted and put in our show notes. Uh, James, thank you so much for taking the time today and coming and speaking. You dropped a great amount of knowledge there. Uh, I've made a ton of notes. I think everyone listening is going to get a lot from this episode. So thank you very much, bud. You're more than welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. No worries, bud. Take care. Thank you, mate. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed the content here, please check out our website at monarchhumanperformance.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with future podcast episodes, articles, and upcoming content, including trend programs and live and online workshops.